in the forefront of our thinking and uh, we'll be watching all of that uh, unfold over the coming months. Well, hopefully a positive year for uh, uh, for the cricketers. Uh, Toby Lawson, former Managing Director at Society Generale uh, in Sydney, with our view from Australia. And also thank you very much to our guests, Andrew Ferris, CEO of Ecognosis Advisory, and Carlos Casanova, a Senior Asia econo- Economist at UBP. Let's take a quick look at the markets. Uh, currently, the Nikkei 225 is down 0.6% at 26,290. Uh, the S&P AS SX200 uh, up 1% at 7,350. The Kospi up 6 tenths to 1% at 2,380. Hang Seng futures look towards the market opening about uh, 7 tenths of 1% uh, higher. Uh, looking at the weather, mainly cloudy and foggy, one or two rain patches at first. The maximum temperature around 23 degrees today. Light to moderate southeasterly winds. Uh, the outlook warm and foggy with sunny periods. 20 Celsius, 96% relative humidity. I hope you can join me tomorrow night from 10 past 6 for the greatest hits of music. Back chat with Andrew and Yuki is next. That's after the news. And with the news headlines, here's Barry. An investigation by the MTR into a partial train derailment last year has found that serious corrosion in certain nuts and bolts of a metal barrier caused it to dislodge. Several doors were ripped off a carriage as the train pulled into Yamate Station in November, disrupting train services on the Chunwan line that day. Frank Young has the details. According to detailed findings of the investigation panel, the metal barrier that the train hit was displaced due to seriously corroded mounting bolts and nuts at the structure's base frames on the ground and the tunnel wall. The probe also found that a public announcement following the accident failed to let passengers know where they should exit the train. In response, the railway company vowed to implement the recommendations by the panel. Its operations director, Tony Lee, said that in the wake of the recent incident, the corporation is upgrading or replacing all 57 metallic protection barriers of similar nature and conducting specific maintenance on the barriers. Staying local from Monday, non-Hong Kong residents will no longer be able to receive COVID vaccines free of charge in the SAR. It means they must pay to receive vaccinations at private healthcare providers should they wish to get inoculated. The government says this is to ensure Hong Kong residents have priority. Meanwhile, health officials reported more than 9,200 COVID cases yesterday, of which 292 were imported. 74 more people with COVID have died. The head of Israel's Supreme Court has accused the country's new government of launching an unrestrained attack on the justice system. The BBC's Sebastian Usher reports. The response by Chief Justice Esther Hayut to a radical overhaul of a justice system proposed by Benjamin Netanyahu and his religious nationalist coalition partners has been ferocious. She condemned it as a plan not to fix the system, but to crush it. She said it would change the democratic identity of Israel beyond recognition. The proposed reform would limit the High Court's ability to provide a counterweight to moves by the government, while giving politicians a greater say in selecting judges. The Justice Minister, Yariv Levine, has accused Ms Hyatt of not being neutral and siding with the opposition. A film foundation in Saudi Arabia has announced that it is co-producing a French film starring Johnny Depp as King Louis XV. The Red Sea Film Foundation said that its first international co-production with France would be the period drama Jean du Barry, written and starring the French actress and filmmaker Mai Wen. 
The US Justice Department has appointed a special counsel to review the classified material from Joe Biden's time as vice president, found at two addresses. Their contents and the level of classification aren't yet known. But the BBC's North America editor, Sarah Smith, says it's an awkward situation for the president. We're expecting President Biden to announce that he wants to run again for president in 2024 in the next few months. This will certainly overshadow that and it could drag on for months and months. And as information leaks out of these investigations, as potentially there is also a congressional inquiry going on at the same time, which would take hearings in public, this is a story that is going to dog President Biden for months, if not years. The head of one of the world's biggest oil companies has been named as president of this year's UN Climate Summit, hosted by the United Arab Emirates. Sultan Ahmed Al-Jaber, who heads Abu Dhabi's national oil company, is the Emirates Climate Envoy. Harjit Singh, a senior advisor to the campaign group Climate Action Network International, says the appointment is unsuitable. We are outraged and it is deeply disturbing to say the least. Clearly, he's going to promote the interest of fossil fuel industry, and that will undermine the outcomes of COP28 climate conference. Like we talk about tobacco, which causes cancer, it's the same story with the fossil fuel industry. They are only a problem and not part of the solution. And finally, a new study suggests dolphins raise the volume of their calls when faced with increasing noise levels underwater. Researchers found louder noise impaired the animal's ability to communicate. Pernell Sorensen is the lead author of the study. We had two dolphins perform this cooperative task in which they were asked to both swim to two underwater push buttons and press these buttons within one second of each other. And at the same time, we had them wear these suction cup tags that will record all the sounds that they are producing themselves and the noise in their surroundings. And then we would have a speaker that we would place underwater and that would emit this noise that we were exposing them to. And so we were investigating how increasing levels of noise would impact their vocal behavior and their physical behaviours and whether they would change that in order to be successful performing this task. We'll have more news on the hour from RTHK. Good morning. This is Back Chat for January, Friday the 13th. Are you feeling lucky? Welcome to the show. I'm Andrew Work. And I'm Yuki Tang. Today, Backchat's puppet master steps out from behind the curtain. I can't say welcome to the show as it's your baby, Yuki, but I can say welcome to the airwaves. Thanks, Andrew. Happy to be here. Hey, glad to have you on. On Friday's Backchat, we are talking about the return of the high-speed rail link between Hong Kong and mainland China, with services set to resume from this Sunday, January the 15th. 10,000 high-speed rail tickets per day are now on sale, 5,000 in each direction. Passengers can mainly travel to Shenzhen and Guangzhou during the preliminary stage. People can either reserve their ticket on the mainland's 12306, that's 12306, ticketing website, or purchase them directly at the West Kowloon Terminus. But you better move fast. Most mainland-bound tickets for the first week of reopening have already been snapped up. Are 10,000 tickets enough? Do we have enough staff ready for the resumption? Will the trains run on time? After 9.15 a.m., we are talking wild boars, as the number of people injured by wild boars rose in 2022. Blame the pigs or blame the people, you tell us. Hit us on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, uh, or send us an email, backchat at rthk.hk. And kicking off today's show, we welcome lawmaker Gary Tong, Deputy Chairman of the Ledgeco Subcommittee on Railway Affairs, and... 
former employee of the MTR. Good morning, Gary. Welcome back. Oh, good morning, Jeff. Yeah. Can't get enough of Gary. Uh, second time this week. Looking forward to having your, your comments today. Uh, we'd like to also welcome one of our regulars, uh, deep expertise in the transport sector. Of course, regulars will know I'm talking about Alok Jain, CEO and Managing Director of Trans Consult. Good morning, Alok. Good morning, Andrew. Hey, so uh, let's kick off. So finally, the high-speed rail, uh, you know, people made a big deal about it when it opened, and then, and then it kind of got shut down very quickly with the advent of COVID. Uh, Gary, um, you know, we talked about it a little bit the other day, but now that as the moment draws near, are all systems go? Are they ready for action? Oh, I, I think in terms of a railway operations part, um, the, the, the railway staff, uh, MTR, the, the operator, the MTR uh, company, uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure they are, they are ready for the, the, the training operations. In fact, in, in the past three years, the station wasn't really, like, uh, fully shut down. They still got uh, regular ch uh, checks or uh, regular maintenance for different equipment, and also for each day they, they are still uh, they, they were still running trains between Shenzhen, Shenzhen and Hong Kong. So I, I'm not so worried about the train operations part, but the ticketing part, yeah, as, as you just mentioned, uh, yesterday was quite a uh, 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 quite a challenge for most, for many uh, for many. Uh, um, like uh, citizens say, who who wanted to uh, ride on high speed rail to go back to uh, mainland China. So uh, the ticketing part was uh, was a big challenge. Yeah. And I mean, are they doing the right thing by limiting? I mean, I mean, I guess you're always limiting the amount of people who can go by the amount of seats you have on offer. But are they are they doing the right thing by limiting the number of trains, keeping it below full capacity as they bring operations back in line, or, or do you think that? You know, maybe they should have been more aggressive to answer for pent up demand. Yeah, uh, I, I think for the the, the train trips, uh, uh, so f uh, in fact, in the initial stage, they uh, they resumed like uh, like uh, thirty eight point five pairs of uh, trains between uh, uh, Hong Kong and uh, Shenzhen and Guangzhou. I, I think this part is adequate. Uh, uh, it's uh, it's uh, approximately about like. Uh, Forty uh, percent or fifty percent of the uh, normal capacity before the the, the, the high speed rail was uh, shut down. I, I think this part was adequate. But uh, what I couldn't understand, what I, I cannot understand, is uh, they actually introduced another another layer of uh, quota system. Uh, I mean, on top of the train trips, and uh, they actually limit limit the quota to uh, five thousand per per direction per day. I I, I just. Uh, couldn't figure out what was the rationale behind of it. Yeah. Um, good morning, Mr. Zhang. Um, just now you mentioned there um, are some issues with ticketing. What was the problem? Um, like uh, for for yesterday, because uh, now they, the ticketing system was fully integrated with the national uh, ticketing system. So uh, um, if you if you uh, if you don't go to the the, the the manual counter at the terminals. You have to use the uh, the national system to um, buy a ticket, and, uh, and for Hong Kong residents, um, um, a lot of uh, I mean, I mean, a lot of them uh, face the difficulty in in uh, regist uh, registration. I, I mean, uh, like uh, uh, myself, also try to uh, uh, register a account uh, 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 at the national ticketing system. But it didn't work well. I, it took me like uh, almost two hours to finish the process. What? And, uh, yeah, <laughs> because uh, you required a lot of the verification verification process. 
like uh, it requires uh, me to send a message to a mainland number. But uh, for 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 Hong Kong for Hong Kong residents, uh, if you don't have a, a mainland uh, mobile number, it, this part could be very difficult. So uh, yeah, even for me, I took like uh, two hours to just finish the registration system. So uh, uh, the ticket, and after I finished the registration system, when I finally could uh, get into the system and to buy tickets, all like uh, uh, all the tickets to Guangzhou were uh, were already sold out. So uh, that's a big. Uh, I would say it's a indeed that was a disappointment uh, in terms of the convenience of the ticket ticketing system. Um, and obviously, I know many residents, um, they couldn't get their tickets um, yesterday because many of them are sold out. Um, yep. Obviously, Chinese New Year is coming up. Do you think we have the capacity to open up more trains or um, do we have enough staff for the, for more trains to be operated? Or, yeah, what do you think? Yeah, definitely, I, I think our, uh, the, the capacity, uh, theoretically, the capacity shouldn't be a problem because so we, 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 we resume the train trips. But we didn't. Uh, we didn't sell the tickets. That, that's what we are. We are facing now. We resumed 38.5 train trips, but we limit the the, 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 the train tickets to like 5,000. But in in in, in theory, 38.5 trips can, uh, it, it means like uh, more than uh, 20,000 uh, uh, capacity per per direction per day. So I, I really don't understand why they introduced this extra. Uh, limit on the on the on the, on the capacity of the high-speed rail. Yeah. Alec Jane, you're you're the trans consult man. Should they have consulted you? What what uh, what do you make of this? Well, I think it's a welcome move. It's a good start, certainly. But as Gary was mentioning, um, I think this limitation with respect to number of people who can travel, especially during Chinese New Year, it's kind of an artificial um, barrier that has been set. But obviously, um, I think uh, in this one. One is the operational side of the train, which I, I don't think I have any doubt uh, that MPRC is ready to get, get back into action. But I think there is another layer, which is of immigration and custom officials, and, and that is a bit of a um, unknown for us and on how they are, they are ha going to handle and remobilize uh, entirely new boundary crossing uh, in, in that sense. Uh, because, you know, it's a whole establishment that they need to mobilize at West Kowloon. And maybe because this 5,000 limitation is coming because of the manpower deployment from the immigration and customs side. So that uh, we don't quite know whether this is more of a railway constraint or whether it's a manpower constraint of the boundary crossing facilities. Right. And so do you anticipate Hong Kong immigration is going to have challenges or is it on the other end, uh, the east and Both south sides. stations? I think both it's on both sides because uh, right now we are when we are opening all these boundary crossings, there is a whole systems that is happening at these boundary crossings, and and obviously um, a, a lot of that uh, procedural aspects of those immigration processes uh, are being uh, you know completely re redesigned or um, even uh, retraced. So and and that's what is taking time, and that's what requires a lot of preparation. Yeah, Gary, are you in touch with the Hong Kong immigration or immigration on the other side? Have you got a take on this? Um, yeah, I, yeah, like uh, Alex just mentioned, the train capacity shouldn't be a problem. So, what, what, what was holding back the capacity? Uh, the, 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 uh, I mean, what was the reason behind the, the, the current 5,000 quotas uh, limit? So, yeah, uh, it, it may be the immigration part of, or customs part of, of the of the of of, of the of, of the of, of the constraints. So um, 
Yeah, well, we definitely check with the government and see uh, whether they could like uh, deploy uh, more manpower to uh, to uh, tackle this problem. Yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll get a quick email in uh, that we got early. Early in the show, it says, congrats on co-hosting Backchat. You sound great on air. All the best from uh, Dan Van Hoy, who's listening from Manila. I assume she's talking about you, Yuki, oh. so I'll let you get your digs yep. in. Thank you, Dan. Um, so, um, Mr. Zhang, um, obviously we've got some new stations, um, new stops for the train, and then now it's heading to um, Guangzhou East. Do you think, um, the, what do you think of the routine? Do you think it's, it makes sense? You mean the Guangzhou East uh, station, the new yes, destination? Yes. Yeah, the destination. Oh. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, the past, uh, the dest- uh, this train trip from Hong Kong to uh, Guangzhou East was uh, actually provided or, 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 or operated by the by intercity service. So uh, uh, and now uh, the, the the high speed rail can also reach uh, Guangzhou East, which is a, a very, uh, I mean which is a very uh, frequent destination for many of the Hong Kong residents. I, I, I think that, that that's, uh, that's, uh, that's a good move and it's more convenient uh, to, to ride on the high-speed rail. And actually, the journey time was shortened. So, um, I, 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 I mean, uh, once everything, everything is back to normal, um, I, uh, I estimate, I, I, I guess, that about um, 10,000 people per day uh, uh, I mean, in the past, they will they will use the intercity service to travel to uh, Guangzhou East, and they, uh, like uh, these ten thousand ten thousand passengers, they would uh, be uh, diverted to the diverted to the high speed rail service. Yeah, and I I have to admit, Gary, it's been you know given COVID, it's been a long time since I've been to Guangzhou. I, I do remember that when the high speed rail opened, there were criticisms that it did not go downtown. Uh, was that the South Station? Is the East Station the one that wanted people to get to? Is that the is that the downtown station? That's the East Station, yeah. Okay, good. So yeah, the East Station was the downtown station, yeah. Yeah. So there there is a downtown option now. Mm. Okay, yeah. gotcha. Um, Alok Jane, uh, what are you hearing out out, out in terms of uh, connections to get into the station in Hong Kong? Um, is that all working smoothly as well? If people want to get themselves to the station, apparently because it sounds like it's easier to go to the station to buy tickets <laughs> for well, Hong Kongers, you might have to take two trips, one to buy tickets, one to actually go. No, I think uh, you, you don't have to travel to the station to buy tickets. As, as you, can, you can do it through online, although there are glitches in the system at the moment and it's not very convenient. But I mean, but, Gary, uh, Gary just said two hours to register. Yeah, well, I, I might as well go to the station, save myself some time, right? Well, yes. I mean, that option is always there. And obviously, you can buy through a number of agents, uh, travel agencies. Uh, they are also selling the tickets. So, mm. But having said that, I think uh, West Kowloon Station remains um, very well connected. And best way to go there is by using a train or a bus. And it's very well connected to Austin Station. Uh, has a big uh, number of bus routes that are serving there. So if you're driving there, they, I don't uh, quite recommend that because the parking there is limited. Uh, and and obviously, uh, you know, going by public transport is the best way to go. Okay. And, and so, yeah. yeah. So, so I think connectivity on this side of the world, uh, this side of Hong Kong, uh, is is not an issue. Uh, I I am quite dark about the connectivities that are coming on the Chinese side, whether it's a full resumption of public transport services at Guangzhou Tung Station or uh, you know Guangzhou South Station, whether uh, those things are fully resumed or not. That's a bit of a uh, from those stations, if I want to get on to the rest of China, how well connected are both of those stations if I want to head off to other parts in China? 
So Guangzhou East is quite well connected. Uh, you can change over to number of trains, and even from Shenzhen, you can change over to the, the high-speed rail network uh, in, in in China. But having said that, I think the direct services from Hong Kong to various parts of China, I think it was operating more than 50 destinations earlier, and and that was a very attractive option, especially if you were tourist or if you were going to see the family. And for Beijing, Shanghai, I mean, I particularly found Beijing, Shanghai to be extremely attractive destinations. You could you could just uh, you know, instead of flying there and, and having all kind of uh, uncertainties, train was certainly a fantastic option. Those options are not reactivated yet. And I think that is uh, really, uh, I mean, Guangzhou is, of course, the, the busiest section which is open. So it's a welcome move. But the number of other destinations, the whole part of the high-speed rail network was that Hong Kong was becoming part of this bigger mainland high-speed rail network. That activation is still uh, yet to come. Yep. Hi, Ms. Um, morning, Mr. Uh, Mr. Jane. Um, so I know that our train operators, um, they said there's no definite timetable to resume long-haul destinations at the moment. Do, uh, how long do you think it would take for us to reopen the long-haul trains? Well, in my opinion, once you open the station, once the operational processes are in place and you've got immigration customs in place, then it's a matter of just... Uh, getting uh, the, the parts, as we say. So once the parts are available, and, and again, um, parts the way they work, it, at the Hong Kong side, there may be absolutely no problem in terms of number of parts. It's only 38 or, or trains right now. So, But obviously in the mainland network, uh, whether the signaling system at certain point has a bottleneck which cannot process more trains, then there would be a problem. But I don't uh, think that there is a problem on the high-speed rail network at the moment where it cannot accommodate more trains. Um, I also want to bring up um, the, th uh, the through train that connects um, Hong Kong's Hong Kong station to Guangzhou East. Now it's not in use. Do you think it's a waste or do you think um, they're, they're just not useful at, all at this stage? idea, I mean, it was part of the plan. whole idea was uh, to build this high-speed rail network was eventually to phase out those intercity trains at Hong Kong. And, and I think this is probably uh, how it is being executed at the moment. Uh, it is being taken as an opportunity to start with West Kowloon and promote people move uh, to the western side of Hong Kong, um, western side of Kowloon from Hong Kong, and then eventually uh, phase it out, uh, you know, as time goes on. Mr. Zhang? Oh uh, yeah, I, I I I agree with that. Um, in fact, uh, yeah, um, I, I think it's part of the plan to phase out the intercity service because now high speed rail uh, high speed rail system can can also provide the same service between uh, uh, connecting like uh, uh, West Kong terminus to uh, Guangzhou East, and it's actually the the, the journey time was uh, was 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 uh, uh, is will be shortened and. Uh, and the, the price of tickets is about is about the same. So, mm. I yeah I, I I as far as I know, uh, the the intercity department of MTR has already been dismissed. So I think uh, the the intercity service uh, has already been uh, like uh, fully transferred to high speed rail. So um, uh, yeah, um, I, I think in the, in the in the future it will not come back. And and actually this is a this is actually good for the East Rail. For the Israel services, because now the Israel services can uh, can uh, accommodate more uh, more train trips for local services. Yeah. So you you uh, you made a quick hit on cost. How far can you travel and still make it time and cost effective on the high speed rail? I mean, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna go to Beijing, I'm still gonna fly to Beijing. Uh, if I'm gonna go to Shanghai, 
I don't know. Should I take the high-speed rail? Um, you know, and I, I'm assuming that in the Pearl River Delta, the high-speed rail is going to be competitive with flying or taking the bus. But, I mean, where, where does it fall in terms of the time and money calculation? I think for high-speed rail, the really, uh, the really, uh, the really edge is for the for those destinations like uh, uh, within. Uh, uh, Maybe uh, 1,000 kilometers, and that, that we are talking about like a three or three to four hour uh, travel time, uh, because the immigration process at the high speed rail uh, at the West Coast service uh, terminus uh, is much is much faster than uh, than the, the, the Alpha side. So uh, uh, for those destina- destinations around like uh, 1,000 ki- uh, kilometers uh, away from Hong Kong, uh, this uh, the, the high speed the high speed rail uh, service. Is actually could 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 actually be faster than uh, uh, taking flight. So uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it's uh, most uh, it's, it's most competitive uh, for and for, it also, the, for this circle. Yeah. Yeah, Alec. And it also has less uncertainties as compared to the flights. I mean, I've flown to China a lot, and in in Chinese airspace, there are number number of times when you have these military exercises and you have flight cancellations or flight delays, which are sometimes could be very annoying. You know, I have sat in Shanghai Airport for you know, eight, seven, eight hours once, uh, just because there, there were some exercises happening. With trains, and, and, and I would say, uh, go further than with uh, Gary, 1,000 kilometers obviously makes perfect sense for high-speed rail. But if you, even if you're traveling to Beijing, Shanghai, I have went, went to Beijing, Shanghai with the trains. I think it's a fantastic way to travel as compared to the air, because, you know, you don't have any of those hassles that you go through um, at immigration customs at two ends, then waiting for the luggage, checking in for processes and everything. It's more of a walk into a train and then you go straight. So if you have a little bit of time on hand, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fantastic journey even to Beijing, Shanghai. I mean, I'm, I love train journeys and, and I found that to be fantastic. I mean, I, I'm, I don't fly. I don't prefer to fly anymore. Hmm. So, so just to put some finer points on it, I mean, if you're going to go to the airport, you got to leave, you got to get there two hours before your flight, supposedly. I mean, we're, we're not back to like ultra-efficient Hong Kong airport old days yet. So there's three hours there, right? And then you've got, I don't know, an hour at the other end waiting for your bags and getting to your destination, getting to your hotel or wherever you're going. Um, so there's four hours. I mean, how does that compare to taking a train? I mean, how, how much extra time is it going to take to take the train, say, to Shanghai? You know, like you mentioned Shanghai specifically. You spent a lot of yeah. time going there. And, uh, I mean, how long is it, you know, so if you've got that kind of time calculation, getting to Shanghai takes, what, eight hours? And if you were going to take the train? Hours, yeah. yeah. How about if you were taking the train? High speed well, rail from Hong Kong. Roughly eight hours by train, actually. That that's what it is. So if you if you take the high speed train to Shanghai, Beijing, that's about it takes eight to eight nine hours. Okay. And and I, it, it's <clears throat> you know if you're taking a train, I mean right now it's running on the daytime, but eventually I would assume there'll be more trains. And if you're taking an overnight, yeah, you you also save the cost of a hotel one night. Sure. And you can be there in the early morning, and you can do your work all day, and then take a train back to Hong Kong. And what's the what's the cost like? Am I going to pay more for an air ticket, or am I going to, you know, if I'm traveling, let's say, let's let's go, old, you know, low budget uh, budget airline versus taking the train. Yeah, so budget airlines are two options. One is you can you can go to Shenzhen, and from Bawan Airport you can fly in, and that's much cheaper option than flying from Hong Kong Airport. Mm. Um, a lot of people do that. Yeah, but and, then, then we're but, talking like twelve hours. Yeah. So, but that yeah. is. 
from a price perspective, that is the cheapest option. And and for, depending on where you live in Hong Kong, I mean, I live in Shaten, and for me to go to Hong Kong airport to fly to, say, Beijing, it is much easier for me to go to Bawan and, and then fly from here. Uh, you know, it's cheaper, uh, faster, uh, both ways. So it all depends how, how who, where you live and what is most convenient to you. But having said that, once you are doing, uh, from a price point of view, from Hong Kong, and right now the, the airline air fares are extremely high, and you you are literally paying a premium to to buy your air tickets. So in those perspective, in that perspective, high speed rail is much better because one, you don't have these price fluctuations. It's a pretty standard price. There are quotas and all those things at the moment, but eventually that will go away. So you have a price guarantee literally uh, for to travel to China and. Depending on, uh, I mean, if you are comparing low season on the aircraft prices, then obviously airline is much much cheaper. They do different types. Their pricing structures are different. But I think in a in a routine manner, routine travel, uh, trains turn out turn out to be more competitive than than the flights. Okay, so I, I just very quickly, uh, do you think that this is going to put the airlines or the buses out of uh, out of business on those routes, in particular to Guangzhou, but maybe also to farther destinations? Well, airlines, yes. I think for short-distance travel, uh, for airlines in China, is already affected by high-speed rail network. It's much more convenient. Uh, buses are slightly different because buses serve those destinations which are hard to reach by a railway uh, station. So I don't think buses will be affected that much. And as we say, uh, to make a train work, you need a few thousand people. To make a bus work, you need just a couple, you know, a hundred people. So, and and I think it. it Caters to very niche demand uh, on buses, so buses would always be there. They would survive because they would find those pockets which are not very well served by the trains. True, true. Will always be there. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much, Alec Jane, CEO and Managing Director of Trans Consult, and Gary Tsung, lawmaker, Deputy Chairman of the Ledsco Subcommittee on Railway Affairs, for joining us today on the show. Uh, we're going to be talking more trains after the news with Michael Chen, Roundtable Convener and Legislative Counselor. Always has strong. Uh, strong and strongly argued positions on uh, trains and other issues. So that'll definitely be one to catch in a few minutes. Uh, in the meantime, we'll let you know that our weather today is mainly cloudy and foggy with one or two rain patches. Uh, looking at the current temperature, it is 20 degrees Celsius. And we are at 95% humidity here with Yuki Tsang and Andrew Work on Back Chats. that they realized uh, that the documents were there. Uh, they reached out to the archives. They reached out to the Department of Justice. You're listening to the news on RTHK. And we are here back on Backchat with Andrew Work. And for the first time, stepping out of the shadows in the producer's chair, live on air <laughs> is Yuki Tsang. Good to have you on, Yuki. Yay, thank you, Andrew. Very excited. We're also excited to have on Michael Tin, roundtable convener and legislative counselor, who I gave a big build-up uh, at the end of the last half hour. Michael Tin, welcome back to the show. Thank you, thank you. Uh, you know, subject near and dear to your heart, the railways. And I understand, there's something that I think a lot of people might not appreciate, but I understand you, you've got your eye on, is that the distribution of tickets actually between Hong Kong uh, people booking here and people booking from China, it's, it's not balanced, is it? Can you explain that? <laughs> it took me a while to sort out what actually happened. Uh, NTR, out of good intention, asked the uh, National Rail Bureau uh, to block out uh, quite a number 
England side have access to that booking, and uh, it would be very little tickets for Hong Kong people traveling up north uh, during the opening days, or at least uh, before Chinese New Year. And that if they couldn't get it, and then they go to the station, and it's all sold out, they get very frustrated. So they actually locked out out of good intention uh, quite a bit of the 5,000 uh, to be sold at the station. So then what happens is uh, if you go online to book, uh, the portion allocated to that is very small, over the 5,000. And it's sold out very quickly, so everything is uh, uh, not available. But then if you go to the station, you can get basically any ticket, mostly any ticket you want on any day to most of the stations. All right? So in effect, I think they have a wrong estimate as to uh, the, the, the split between uh, dividing that 5,000. Okay, uh, between uh, online and offline education. So they, now they're trying to rectify that. Hmm. But that takes time because apparently something like that has to be approved by uh, <laughs> uh, central government up there. And it is a, uh, a software change that they can't just do right away. So what will happen probably is that for the next few days, everything online will be sold out. So you just have to go to the station. If you go to the station, uh, there'll be, you know, at least from what I saw at 7 p.m. yesterday, uh, basically you still have seats left uh, on uh, any day to any uh, station, uh, destination, uh, except you may not be able to pick the right uh, schedule. Okay, in other words, there may be 200 seats left to Guangzhou East, but maybe the 8 o'clock train in the morning are all full, so I have to take the 10 o'clock or the 12 o'clock. Okay, so that is the situation. Uh, so my advice to everybody who gets frustrated and thought that everything was sold out, that is not true. Okay? Uh, go to the station. There are plenty of tickets. If you can't get the right hour or the right uh, uh, departure time you want, there'll be other departure times during that day for that destination. Good morning, Mr. Tin. So, um, obviously, for this time, um, only e-tickets are available. Do you think that would cause confusion um, for passengers? Uh, I'm sorry. What do you mean by e-tickets? Basically, they don't issue tickets anymore, right? Mm. They use your passport number or your uh, re-entry permit, and then that's it. So once you make payment, uh, you ask for a receipt just to make sure if you get in trouble, you show the receipt. Otherwise, you don't need the receipt. You just use your uh, travel uh, document, uh, and then you just go through the gate. So in a sense, it's not even e-ticket, it's a tickless concept. Gotcha. And we had we had uh, so uh, we had the earlier part of the show. We had Gary Tsong, and he said it took him almost two hours to set up uh, an account with the online service uh, for things like, for example, you had to have a mainland registered phone number. And a lot of people in Hong Kong uh, are not going to have a mainland registered phone number. And so the you know being able to sign up for an account. 
to then be able to try and purchase a ticket, he said, was was uh, particularly onerous. It's a lot, of, a lot of friction for people trying to book on the Hong Kong side. Is, it, is this another spanner in the works? Remember, MTR used to have their own website, mm. okay? And that is very user-friendly to Hong Kong people, all right? But then they realized that interacting with the mainland uh, platform <clears throat> creates a lot of uh, uh, lagging behind, so they decide to focus everything on the... Uh, <clears throat> So how- but anyway, like I said, the best thing at this point in time, not to create a panic, is to just go to the station. There are tickets, all right? And if people uh, uh, got worried that everything is sold out, all I can say is it's not true. That's the, your tickets. Yeah, that's the so pro, the pro tip of the day. Out, they need time to work out how they can facilitate the online booking as well. Okay, and but uh, you know, as you said, so there's the technical aspect of that, and then there's the legal approval aspect of that. Um, I'm guessing that given the experience of the MTR, they could probably figure out the technical side pretty quickly. How long uh, does it take for them to get a approval for changes every time they want to make a, a, a small change or a major change? I think, I think a couple of days. A couple of days. I, I asked them why do they want to set uh, get uh, a block these seats? One and just let it go, but then they worry that if that's the case, uh, then it's open up for everybody in China to book. Eventually, mm. uh, there's a lot of people coming down and then going back, and uh, then you know, uh, so they just want to actually leave uh, a portion of the five thousand uh, for online and for the station purchase, and there's never the right there. All right, uh, initially they put. Too low a number on online, so that got sold very quickly. I think the concept is valid. I don't think they should put it all into one pool, in which case, you know, we are going to be <clears throat> going after tickets when we get close to CNY, together with everybody else uh, on the mainland side. I think adjusting uh, the uh, quota is probably uh, a better way. But regardless, I think at least we have a way of getting the ticket at the station at this point. Honestly, if you ask me, it's to our advantage, right? Because mainlanders trying to get a ticket out of West Kowloon, it's not easy for them to get it at the station, right? It's very mm-hmm. easy for them to get it online. Right. right. So if we want to have an advantage of getting those tickets, leaving uh, West Kowloon up north, uh, I would think that keeping a bigger quota at the station to secure the uh, uh, the supply is a better thing, better thing for us. So I'm just uh, using this interview to advise everybody. If you find out that uh, they say it's all sold out online, don't panic. Let's go to the station. Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to get your view on the intercity through train. Obviously, um, the Hong Kong station, they got restaurants, all 
the facilities there, um, but now it's not in use. Do you think it's a waste? How much cost um, have we put in for the through train? You mean the facility and all that, right? Yes, correct. Actually, honestly, that's probably another side benefit of them terminating that because they don't need to have two alternatives going to Bong Chow, right? Mm-hmm. And then they can use that space uh, for other development and event. I, if they're looking at the plan, Housing or commercial development? I don't know. It's up to them and government. All right. If they want to do housing, they have to uh, pay premium to the government, or if they do other uh, developments. Uh, then it's something else. But it is uh, to me, I support using that space uh, rather than having it idle, and definitely better than having a duplicated line where both sides are running at a very low capacity. And, and, you know, we, we touched on this briefly at the end of the last half hour, but uh, what do you anticipate for other businesses, other transport services, whether it's buses, uh, air, you know, air rail? I, I know I was looking at uh, numbers for major airports in Japan, and given the catchment area for airports in Tokyo and Osaka, their airline numbers are quite low, uh, in part because the Japanese use high-speed rail quite often. I mean, should we expect a similar situation here? Is the airport going to lose out? Uh, you know, and see its, see its numbers decline? We talked about that extensively when the, the high-speed rail was first, uh, you know, envisaged. And then, and then they subsequently had a cause overrun and there was a public outcry. And we start uh, questioning the effect of uh, uh, the high-speed rail. And actually, since it started operation, it has never really reached its uh, full capacity. All right? So the idea, though, is to get uh, more and more people doing the high-speed rail, at least uh, to Sunchen and Guangzhou, <coughs> and then to cities uh, within four-hour journey. Uh, uh, For example, Wuhan, Changsha is about four hours. So you're talking about from town center to town center, the traveling time is four hours. Now, if you take a plane, uh, you have to travel to uh, Chalapkok. Uh, you have to go there uh, quite a bit earlier to check in. And then you fly to Wuhan, and the airport is not in the town center. And then you have to get a luggage out and, and then uh, take a bus into the town center. So I think high-speed rail is very competitive within a four-hour serving time, four to five-hour uh, I mean, for me personally, if I were to go to Shanghai, Beijing, I'll fly. I would not take the high-speed rail. Right. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Michael Tim. We invite you on the show because you're bringing the pro tips that everybody in Hong Kong needs to hear. If you need to get tickets on that train right now and you're trying to get them on the website and you think it's sold out, go to the station. Says Michael Tin, roundtable convener and legislative counselor. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. And back on Backchat with me, Andrew Work, and... 
Yuki Tsang, first time live on the show, not behind the, in the production booth. Glad to have you on. We're going to be talking wild boars. The number of people injured by wild boars in Hong Kong actually increased in 2022. Uh, who is to blame? Uh, we've got a couple of people that we want to talk about with that today. Uh, Karina O'Carroll is an animal welfare education manager at Animals Asia. Good morning, Karina. Good morning. How are you? Uh, I'm, do, I'm doing okay, actually. Doing Good. okay. I, I, uh, my, my interactions with boars are usually pretty benign. <laughs> actually, they're always benign. I've never had a problem with a boar, so I'm doing good. Uh, we'd also like to welcome Hannah Mumby, Assistant Professor, School of Biological Sciences at the Faculty of Science, Hong Kong University. Good morning, Hannah. Good morning. Hey. So um, I'd like to get into today. The number of incidences of uh, boar attacks are up. Which kind of surprises me in one way. I, I never have trouble. I, us, I usually see them in the morning, sometimes passing within a, a hand's distance. Uh, if it's a narrow part of the trail, they're fine. Mm -hmm. I'm fine. My buddies are fine. Everybody's fine. <laughs> um, but other people are not fine. Uh, you know, what, what is causing, you know, these kind of interactions between people and boars that are less than ideal? Um, perhaps I could uh, chime in on, um, I think... For some of the individual boars, a lot of the issues, I think, come down to something called habituation. So the boars become accustomed to being in an urban environment. They also, unfortunately, become accustomed to some things that we do as humans, such as feeding them or inappropriate disposal of our rubbish, um, which is a multi-pronged issue. Um, and once boars become habituated to the presence of humans being fed or having easy access to rubbish sources as sources of food, it can be quite difficult to change that behavior. So I think some of the incidences that have occurred, unfortunately, are potentially due to that sort of change in behavior in the boars, but unfortunately due to our human behavior, perhaps. I think it's just like um, I uh, when I take the bus, I always see people feeding the monkeys on the mountains, oh, and really? then yeah, and then the the monkeys became very aggressive because they're so used to people um, feeding them food, and then they would just um, not like attack, but then they would just um, get the plastic bags from yeah. the people. So sure, I guess sure. maybe I think gets... animals are quite they're opportunistic. So if they have a easy regular source of food that they don't have to search or work for, they tend to change their behavior to come back to those sources. But obviously not everybody is going to be passing them and feeding them. So there is where the problem sort of begins, is that some people who accustom them to feeding or the access to rubbish issue, not everybody is going to be doing that behavior, but the animals don't know that. So they approach or start to approach then um, every person that they might encounter, which then obviously can lead to some issues and problems. Yep. Hannah Mumbi, your, your take on habituation? Um, yeah, it certainly happens, and we observe that even just... Um, you can kind of test it out at a safe distance if you have a plastic bag, then the boars will approach you. I think there's something interesting, um, kind of what you said, in that your, re your interactions were benign or kind of neutral. Um, in terms of what people report, we have about 50% of people reporting that they're pleased to see boars, but then we also have a similar proportion reporting that they're fearful. And um, about 30% saying that they're disgusted and 30% saying that they're angry when they see wild boars. Um, so those don't add up to 100 because people could select more than one because obviously we can have multiple responses to the animals. But I think there's something interesting going on here in terms of interaction. Um, 
awareness of our responses and our behavior because obviously we have this thing with feeding and interacting with the boars in that way and that's changing their behavior. But then also being aware that, okay, well, some people are afraid or angry when they're approaching those same boars that are becoming habituated, which then can kind of escalate that, the interaction and cause potentially injuries as well. Mm-hmm. And I guess part of it is that pe- people in Hong Kong are not really educated on how to handle wild animals, right? Like, I mean, I grew up in Canada, and you, you know, you learn that. You go out in the forest. It's like, here's what you do if you run into a bear. Here's what you do if you run into a cougar. I don't think that's part of the, you know, the, the common education in Hong Kong, is it? I think um, a lot of groups and NGOs and various different organizations are attempting, including the government, to do a lot of public education campaigns. But I think definitely more could be done. Um, I often get asked questions, you know, I've seen a boar, who do I call? And it's, um, you know, I always find it quite fascinating that um, that's the sort of reaction is that just simply seeing wild animals at times needs to result in a call to someone. I think just trying to promote the uh, respectful distance, um, obviously keeping away from wildlife, you know, if wildlife retains some element of fear towards people, that actually will do them good in the long run because it's this human-animal conflict when wildlife becomes too accustomed to being too close to humans, you do get increases in in conflict between, obviously, people and the animals. So um, definitely public education. I think we all continue to do that in our day-to-day roles, but um, I think we could do more and also just be open to queries and questions from the public about how to manage these situations that they might be experiencing because... Um, you know, as Hannah was saying, the experiences that we have with these animals is quite different in different regions of Hong Kong with different um, age groups, with different ethnicities as well. So, you know, we really need to look at the attitudes towards these animals, why these attitudes are there, and what can we do to educate on all the different points that people have concerns about. Yeah, I think Housing Estate Brett's probably with you. Uh, Housing Estate Brett says <clears throat> in a, an email, we have several groups of wild boar inhabiting the slopes here around Lai King Hill. Uh, as long as you leave them alone from my encounters with them, they will reciprocate. As mm-hmm. with the monkeys living around Kowloon Reservoirs, if there's any problem, it is entirely to do with the invasive species Homo sapiens. <laughs> pervasive yeah. Homo sapiens, so <laughs> my fun. I think the other issue as well is just, unfortunately, really, we we have to do a bit better in regards to the amount of rubbish that we're making, um, our disposal of rubbish. And I do know that AFCD and FEHD worked quite hard on the development of the rubbish bins that we see around Hong Kong at the moment. Um, But the use of those bins um, and, unfortunately, other designs that might work in other countries, such as Canada, as you mentioned, you know, they do have different designs in different places. But I believe um, when different designs were brought to focus groups there were issues with you know the heaviness of the lid or you know the the ease of use for humans i suppose you could say um about other types of bins that might prevent or be more animal proof than the ones that we have but ultimately it's our responsibility again to make sure that our waste is disposed in a way and a manner that is not accessible by these animals so something i often say to kids during our school talks is you know if a rubbish bin is full find another bin um you know and just changing our behavior in a way with our rubbish disposal that obviously um, doesn't encourage the animals to scavenge. Mm-hmm. The feeding ban was um, came into effect on December 31st um, last year. Right? Do you think that would make a change? Um, it's unfortunate that it's had to come to that level, obviously, with prosecutions. We really shouldn't be feeding wildlife, but at the moment it's still occurring and it's still happening, and unfortunately... 
the culling of the boar is now the result of, of that and other issues. Um, and so if, you know, a couple of prosecutions really start to make the public be aware that they really shouldn't be doing these behaviours and providing food, additional food sources to animals that really are still capable or should be capable of finding food in their natural homes, um, you know, it's sad that it has to come to a level of prosecution, but if this sort of changes behaviour, um, then I do support, obviously, stopping feeding of wildlife because ultimately they're the ones that are now suffering. Dr. Mumbi, besides the law, um, what else can we change on human behaviour? Um, I think it's actually really interesting, um, linking to the point that Karina was making. Among people who feed and don't feed boar, 75% of them think that it's the government's responsibility to deal with this problem. And that compares with their perspective on community responsibility only being 15%. And I think that that's really interesting because um, as Karina highlighted, you know, there's a personal responsibility in here and an individual level behavior, like what we do on a day-to-day basis is affecting things. So I think there's an interesting angle there for our kind of personal and um, community responsibility for what's happening that we might want to think about. Now, in terms of human behavior change, kind of like Karina touched on as well, once the animals get into these patterns of behavior where they're habituated to humans and they're eating very easily accessible food that they're fed or, or rubbish and so on, it's really tricky to get them out of it because it's easy calories for them, it's an easy life for them, even though it's actually really terrible for their health. So something that we can look into is changing the human behavior. Now, having things like bands is one aspect of that and having these kind of punitive measures, but there are also potentially methods that we can use um, from kind of the field of economics and so on called nudging, which is when you try to understand the decision architecture or the thought processes around the decisions people are making about their behavior and then actually using those to leverage the change. Yeah, this is it. I mean, even if we get the people doing everything they're supposed to. I mean, there are, there are issues in places like North America where herds of wild boars, they, they've multiplied to levels where there are literally hundreds of thousands and they are hunting them with helicopters, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with machine guns. I mean, it's like the war against the boars and they're spreading all the way north. And that's, you know, and they, they cannot, they've gotten completely out of control. They cannot pair those populations back. Now, obviously, they have big agricultural industries that are being, you know, Right. being heavily, in, heavily in impacted. North America, yeah, in North America, it's an invasive non-native species, yeah. um, which, which has its own issues. But actually, in Hong Kong, it is a native species. It's supposed to be here. It's a wild animal. It's part of our ecosystem. Mm-hmm. But obviously, the ecosystem can get out of balance with all of the shifts you know, of urbanization and all the modifications that humans make to the environment. Well, and we've killed and, off the predators. I mean, there's no tigers left in Hong Kong to yeah. keep the population down. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, so I mean, if if we don't pair them back, could they get completely out of control? Because I mean, th- there was a big push, and I noticed in the areas where I hike, I don't I don't want to rat I don't want to rat out the pigs that, where I am because I don't want them getting hunted down this afternoon. But I mean, there there were like well, we would count them every day. You know, yeah. when we go hiking in the morning, uh, fifteen. There was a family of fifteen that we had on track, and they all disappeared. And I assume they they got them. But well, now think, the numbers um, are coming back. They seem to be coming back now. The government. 
government, the government previously were doing actually quite good work, AFCD, um, in tandem with other um, uh, veterinary organizations, were doing a capture, sterilize and relocation program, which I think most, the majority of um, us NGOs supported that as a non-lethal method of control and population management. Unfortunately, that is quite labor intensive. And so resourcing um, of different things and also the expense of doing that program um, became an issue. And so that unfortunately has been stopped. But I think many of us would support potentially having that still as an option for the population management that, you know, we can have these non-lethal methods. We can relocate them. Relocation, though, however, does have issues in itself. But if it at least gives them a chance to continue to live as opposed to requiring culling, um, which is where we're at at the moment, um, I think many of us would continue to support um, a capture, sterilization and, and relocation program. The boars are quite smart, however, though, and some of them have been tracked to return to their original places. So, again, it comes back to this difficulty of once their behavior has changed, it's very difficult to revert them back to nature at that point. So, um, multi-pronged approach between various government departments is needed, human behavior change, as we've discussed, um, uh, further public education, and just an understanding generally within the public that we have to share the small space of Hong Kong with many different types of wildlife, and I guess how we behave around those and what we can do if we see those animals is something that is critically important for their survival. All right, so uh, keep your distance, don't leave your litter out. Thank you very much to Karina O'Carroll, Animal Welfare, Animal Welfare Education Manager at Animals Asia, and Hannah Mumby, Assistant Professor, School of Biological Sciences, Faculty of Science at Hong Kong University. All right, I thank the guests, and I'd like to thank you, our listeners, listening. Uh, people were sending in emails. We appreciate all that on the show. Uh, thanks. To, uh, I'd like to, I can't say thanks to Yuki because Yuki, you're a host today, but uh, congratulations. Your first on-air experience. Yeah, it was really fun. Yeah, you've got fan clubs and fan mail. Fantastic. <laughs> also having a first today was our show producer, Haley Yip, stepped up uh, into the big chair uh, to fill in for Yuki. So good job. Uh, Sam Mound, as always. Uh, Andy, Andy Kwok doing a great job over there. Quick check on the weather. Mainly cloudy and foggy. One or two rain patches. Uh, max temperature is going to be 23, warmer than we've had in a while. Right now, the temperature is 21 degrees Celsius and we're at 95% humidity. Be a positive parent and nurture children in proper ways with a good attitude. Show more care and encouragement to your children to help them build confidence. Cultivate positive and optimistic attitudes. Appreciate your children's uniqueness. Unleash their potential to help facilitate children's all-round development and promote their physical